All right, well, we have the author of The Return of the Ether, and as the world's foremost authority in modern ether theory, Shiva spent over a decade lecturing and writing on the history and role of hydrodynamic analogs for particle and relative physics. As a researcher in consciousness, Shiva uses the ether revolution to leverage neuroscience, developmental neural networks, and information theory to create a singularity that opens new vistas in the exploration of our concepts of mind and existence. Thank Welcome. you. Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to uh, use some of uh, last year's slides because I didn't find out that I would actually be uh, presenting this year until like a week beforehand. Uh, but it's uh, going to be basically along the same lines, but I'm going to try to add some uh, things. I don't think I see any familiar faces from last year, so uh, I can kind of just do the same thing. And you guys won't be any of the wiser. But <laughs> <laughs> that um, if you tell them. Oh, oh, oh God. Yeah, the whole, the whole magic thing. Yeah, you're not supposed to show behind the curtain. Um, so how many uh, people here are familiar with the, the concept of ether as the as it was a scientific concept, that it wasn't just something you know magical? Or, okay, uh, so what I'm going to try to go over here is uh, how it actually played a role in, uh, in the development of all of modern physics. And there is a, a commonality that stretches all the way to the current day. And there's actually a revolution that's been brewing underneath the surface that a lot of people are not aware of, where the ether is on its way back. So uh, this is, you know, kind of unbelievable without a lot of historical context. And so I'm going to try to, I've just recently, I haven't technically published it, but it is available for download and a paper on uh, some more detailed history uh, behind the commonalities of hydrodynamics, which is the, uh, that is that's where ether uh, got its start. Um, well, it's got its technical start, and that's really where it overlaps. And, uh, and that paper will be available, and that really gets into, if you want to get into it very, very deeply, but I'm going to try to make this uh, presentation a little more uh, on the accessible side. So uh, let me get to my first slide and see if I can remember what exactly I had in mind Move through these slides. Okay. Um, all right, so you can go all the way back to uh, Newton and, uh, actually, okay, yeah, going back to circa 4th century BCE, there was kind of a... Um, uh, this back and forth that's been going on for a long period of time, whether or not uh, light is made up of particles or if it's made up of some sort of continuous thing. And so, so you've got atomism starting in uh, around the fourth century. Uh, that's in Democritus in the West and Jainism in various Hindu religions in the East. Then you atomism is rejected in favor of continuity uh, around the same uh, era with Aristotle. Uh, and then you have light as, part of, light as particles around 1100 CE through uh, Udayana, and uh, who's a Hindu uh, logician. And uh, then uh, there was kind of corpuscularianism started to uh, to take um, uh, you know center stage through René Descartes and uh, Newton, Boyle, Locke, uh, and that that sort of uh, one. It, it's the thing is it was still kind of an undecided issue. So there's this this back and forth of whether or not things are continuous or discrete that has just been a very long-standing uh, issue. And then we kind of, you know, we, we really reached this point where it's like, oh yeah, it's definitely wave theory. It's definitely waves. We've got the, you know, the, uh, the spectrum coming out through, uh, through Thomas Young's experiments. And so, you know, only waves behave in this fashion of, of showing the spectrum. I can only be there because of frequencies. And so, um, so through Young, Fresnel, uh, Euler, You've got uh, wave theory is, is, you know, they go and describe it in a, in a much more rigorous fashion. And, uh, and then, then uh, by 1850, we have Leon Foucault, 
who uh, has these speed of light measurements, and that's, you know, then we're kind of putting the, the corpuscular uh, theory to rest. But there's some confusion between what is corpuscular, what does corpuscular even mean, you know, what is a corpuscle of light, and, uh, and is it then ballistic, you know, because that, that was also part of Newton's thing, is that it was, it, the light was considered to be, you know, if it was these particles, then did they behave in a ballistic fashion? And so you'll find that the idea of corpuscles uh, it tends to extend all the way into the 20th century uh, through uh, De Bruyne and, uh, and even up to Schrodinger, where the idea of a corpuscle is more about the combination of waves. We'll get, that, we'll get to that in a moment. So, um, what's important here at this point is to talk about exactly what a wave is and, and how in uh, 19th century we had uh, some very specific reasoning that uh, uh, around the time of when we when we switched from what we consider the classical era, that's actually kind of gone back and forth about what exactly is the delineating point. And most people would say that uh, classical physics is anything that's pre-quantum, but uh, before the quantum era was actually kind of thought that we were in a new era as soon as relativity came along. And part of that is because of the reasoning that changed in science. Before the, the, uh, the theory of relativity, uh, you had to have some sort of mechanical reasoning uh, underpinning your any, any theories that you're doing. You can't just you know have some math because math could you know can describe anything. Uh, and so there had to be some sort of mechanical reasoning that you were describing with your math, and that was what the the kind of basis for how science was done is, is mechanics. And so uh, the idea of the ether was specifically if it is a wave, then that a wave is not a thing. In other words, you can look out on the ocean and say, oh, I see a wave. It's a thing. No, it's not. What you're seeing is a behavior. It's a, it's a part of a thing. So, like, for instance, a run is something a person does. It's an action occurring to a thing. You can't hold a run in a hand. And uh, you know, you've got the, all these, these various things that, that occur during it. So it's a description of something, but, you know, you can't hold it. If I remove the runner, I can't have a run. Uh, and a wave is something a medium uh, does. It's an action occurring to a thing. It's like there are bits of water running into each other, attempting to, to achieve equilibrium, or bits of air, or bits of whatever it is. So without the water, without the medium, you can't technically have a wave, because a wave is a description of an event. Um, all right, so that is part of uh, you know where the, this, this change in uh, the, the, what would be called the classical era, kind of, um, many people would consider the end of the classical era, being right at 1905. Uh, well, it would, it would actually be more uh, later than 1905 because the popularism of uh, special relativity wasn't immediately upon it being published. It actually became uh, a little more popular in later years. Um, and here, once again, some, some examples of various types of waves. Like here you have some longitudinal waves in which you can see the particles themselves are, are, are moving in cycles and the waves moving through are not individual items. So, uh, so it's important to, to see that here we have you know, behaviors of particles. Same thing here with these uh, uh, surface waves, where they, you have particles kind of spinning in motions here. And, and so the waves are not things that can exist on their own. So that is part of um, why we had the idea of the ether. The ether had been around for, for a long period of time as a word, but the idea of the ether was that you cannot have waving without something doing it. It's like you, you're saying there's an action. If you say there's an action, something has to be active. Um, and uh, for some reason, my uh, my system always has problems with uh, 
with uh, any, any kind of animation, it takes a while to get off of it. Um, so some of the other ways in which we know that it was a wave is uh, through through interference. So interference is a uh, the peaks and troughs uh, either are in alignment or uh, out of alignment. What happens is they will cancel each other out or add to each other. Then uh, another thing that occurs is diffraction. That is through the, the process of interference, which you have is, uh, well, the diffraction is specifically as it goes through, through a, a small slit. You can see it will spread out, so a plane wave will uh, change into spherical um, you know, waves. And then, then here, this is actually a, uh, a demonstration of a, a two-slit experiment where uh, the waves are interacting with each other. And this, it is important because it will come up later. And, uh, and this, this series is going to be three um, uh, lectures, so I will be getting to the, the various points, so uh, you'll have to bear with me. I, I hope you will come to the next ones. So, so here you have these these, these lines that it's uh, pointing out here. This is actually where you've got uh, areas of constructive and destructive interference, where it's going between either the waves are aligned or they're uh, completely out of alignment. And so, what you have on this uh, this board here is areas of dark where it's been it's destructive, so that it's peak to trough, uh, and then peak to peak and trough to trough is going to have light. So these are called fringes, and it's something you see in interference experiments uh, whenever we're dealing with light, and it's all, all throughout physics. Um, it's all throughout our understanding of physics. Let's see if this will go to the next one. Okay. So one of the things that you'll find is without diffraction, which is as a wave strikes a uh, these slits, what's happened is it goes from being flat into it actually kind of curving around and spreading out, right? Well, if I fire, these look like marshmallows, and I call them marshmallows, like a marshmallow gun, you're just shooting it at this thing. Well, some of them will be blocked, you know, and hit the, the, the area here. But what's going to have to come out on the other side is just two you know, lines of what was able to make it through. So that's when you've got particles, that's how they should behave, is in that fashion. They should all just go straight through, and you should get two lines. You shouldn't have an interference pattern because... Only waves have the diffraction, which is necessary, and only waves can actually interfere with each other to cause that pattern of light and dark, etc. So, um, so particles typically are not going to show that. Um, oh, I didn't get to pop ahead two over there. Um, I think I probably will be getting more to, to into quantum theory in the uh, in the next lecture. So I'm going to I'm going to stay pretty much. Um, on, I'm going to add some of the things that are in my paper uh, at this point, I believe. Let's see, because I'm, I'm getting into some of the differences as to what, what was, why did people have a problem with it, what was some of the other proofs of ether theory. Um, so let me, let me uh, take a kind of a sidestep here and, and go based on memory. And, I, and I've just finished the paper, so it's something I haven't gone over a lot of time, which is a lot of research. And so kind of do that in sections. You uh, don't necessarily remember all of it all that well. Um, there is a thread of how ether theory uh, relates to all the other various uh, modern theories through hydrodynamics. So um, how did we get started with ether theory? What were some of the, uh, the, the major components of it? Well, one of the major components of physics, as we know it, that we people kind of, whenever we're talking about advanced physics, there's kind of a central point at which everything tends to converge, and that's Maxwell's equations. So that's the, the equations of uh, electromagnetism, and that is, he, this is a mathematical description of how waves propagate 
And what he was describing is how they propagate in the ether. Like you saw at the beginning of me uh, my uh, slides here was he, uh, he says that the the ether behaves as wheels and pulleys and gears and, and things of that nature. And so if you actually look through Maxwell's papers now. In modern times, we actually don't even really look at any of Maxwell's work. We look at the, as it's been translated by, uh, well, I can't remember his name, but it, it's, it was, his, his equations were simplified, which means they were more, more abstracted, uh, abstracted, you know, so you understand, like, simplification of anything actually makes it more, further from the source, so you don't, it's not as easy to understand. Um, but when you go through his actual papers, what he's talking about entirely, and he's describing a physical system, of, uh, of vortices, and what he's de describing is invisible fluid mechanics. Now, um, simultaneously, and well, actually, before him, there was a uh, some of the the ways in which people were focused on various things. There was a, a man came, uh, named McCullough. What was his first name? Uh, you know, I can't remember his first name. But uh, McCullough uh, was uh, somebody who's not very well known, except by historians, as someone who um, who was looking into ways to describe um, uh, the interaction of light with crystals, reflection, refraction, and all these in very, very finite uh, terms. So, uh, so what McCullough described was actually a substance. In other words, the way he described the ether was different than uh, anyone other than uh, Maxwell. It was similar to Maxwell, but the characteristic of the ether that, uh, that he used in, and once again, it's in viscid fluid dynamics. In other words, it is a frictionless fluid that they are describing that is going to be acting like gears. In other words, whenever you describe uh, fluids, they're, they're like gears to a certain extent. Um, and what he described was the storage of, of the energy through rotation instead of simply through uh, elastic, elasticity. Like you, you, as I was showing you all these, these waves up here, what you're seeing was elastic collisions where the, the, it was, uh, there was some elasticity that was occurring. So there was a, there was a lot of uh, discussion around elasticity and how this could possibly work. So this was a really important part of the development of ether theory. And Lord Kelvin uh, is uh, entered the picture at this point uh, around the same time as Maxwell. They were, uh, they were kind of, it's kind of a small group of people who were there at the, in, the, uh, in the mid um, you know, 1800s that were, were doing all the development on this. And Kelvin is, is extremely central because he had a, a, a couple of things. He, uh, he first was interested in Helmholtz's idea of vortex atoms. And so uh, one of the things that he described atoms as was um, as ring vortices. Now, if you guys are familiar with what a ring vortex is, it's just simply like a torus, uh, any kind of, it's like a donut, you know, and, uh, and, and what, what's occurring in a ring vortex is that it's like a donut that's spinning in on itself. Though sometimes there's also rotation on in, in another plane as well. But the point is, you've seen those those smoke rings and things like that. It's a torus, and that is uh, the description of atoms as ring vortices was something that was very uh, interesting to Lord Kelvin, uh, and he he, he credits um, uh, Helmholtz with the first idea. And he goes and he works with uh, another fellow who uh, who helps him develop this further. But the thing is, what they need. Is they can't describe um, uh, ether in a way that works perfectly without the this elasticity question exactly perfectly modeling how elasticity of ether would work and uh, and so there are a lot of problems that I'm going to start to get to right here in this uh, in this slide that are uh, are relevant to 
what they were having to deal with. Now, the moral of the story is going to be that just after 1887, in which the confusion created by the Marcus Morley experiment happened, two years after that, Lord Kelvin finished and fixed uh, how the ether would work with a, with a paper that's very, very little known, but actually did continue kind of under the surface and is present in modern physics. And I'll show you how uh, a little later on. And, and I'll, I'll say right now it's through um, uh, micropolar elasticity, which is something developed by the Kosterat brothers. And they also were, were uh, ignored around 1909 and were only rediscovered in the, in the 1960s. But setting that aside, so there were these problems with elasticity. This is, and so uh, Lord Kelvin and others went away for like 20 years after, you know, this idea of vortex atoms and things like that. They're like, they went away for 20 years trying to develop how this would all work. And in so doing, they they created the field of hydrodynamics. So the hydrodynamics as we know it today were, is the developments of Lord Kelvin during that period of time in which he's attempting to create a model of electromagnetism uh, through the ether. So now let's talk for a moment, but because anybody who knows a lot about the history of uh, of physics, there's certain things that are that are popular in the, in other words, the pieces of history you get today are going to be the ones that are biased towards what it is we believe today, because that's what you're looking for. Is, well, you know, why do we believe what it is that we believe? And so you're going to point to the things that are evidence for that. Uh, and so those are the pieces of history that you get, whereas the other pieces are just kind of left, you know, on their own. So uh, one of the things that people bring up is like, okay, so, uh, and like I said, I'm trying to, I'm trying to Part of what this series of slides is about is, is understanding um, how ether was responsible for uh, special relativity entirely, and, and that special relativity, through uh, by a, a kind of one step removed, is a description of ether mechanics. Let me take a drink right here because I'm bringing a lot of different things together at once. <clears throat> okay, so. So the thing is, there are um, properties that we have to say, okay, so if, if this fluid, you know, uh, is there, and we're not really, you know, capable of detecting it except through, you know, lights, motion, and things of that nature, so we're going to have to try to figure out properties uh, of it. And, uh, and some of the things that we had already figured out by the time of the Microsimorley, and why I keep bringing up the Microsimorley, I don't know how many people are aware of the history of special relativity, but that is the point at which uh, special relativity, uh, uh, even I, <laughs> the funny thing is, I actually know historical points where the fad of what the history was changed. And I'll tell you right now, about 15 years ago, a lot of people didn't realize that Einstein uh, said that uh, special relativity is based on the Microsimorley experiment. And I actually had to argue with people, and now the, the consensus is now, oh yeah, of course you knew about that Microsimorley experiment. Everybody knows that. But I didn't know about it 15 years ago. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, the uh, it's just funny how how people's knowledge of history has changed so much since the advent of the internet because now people can go look things up and everybody's getting a little more accurate view of what exactly is happening. So, um, so the Michelson-Morley experiment is this idea: is like okay, if there is this fluid and we're moving through it, you know, because we know we're, we're moving, we know we're moving because we know about that. We've been observing the stars. Well, observing the stars is something humanity's been doing for. Longer than we actually know to put a date on. <laughs> it's, it's been going on a really long time, and so of course we're we're able to see that there are these motions of the uh, the celestial sphere here. That uh, <laughs> to use an old term, 
uh, that indicate that we are in motion. One of the things that uh, we had already discovered is that through looking at the way our shadow, the way that shadows impact the moons of Jupiter, there was it's this ingenious thing that I can never remember exactly how it works because it's just too ingenious for me to remember. But they had actually figured out through the way in which the shadows uh, uh, on the on the various moons of Jupiter are are impacted, exactly how fast we are moving around the sun. Really neat little thing. So I, I really recommend looking into it because it's it's neat. Uh, there's just the logic that they use because I mean they didn't have a whole lot to work with, so they were working with what they had. They found fantastic ways to figure things out back then. So, um, so we knew that we we're doing that. So we then then there, that's at least you know 30 uh, kilometers per hour per second, right? Yes, uh, around the around the sun, and uh, and so if we're moving through this ether, then we should theoretically be able to determine uh, how fast th that our uh, our solar system is moving through the galaxy. And this is where uh, Albert Michelson, which is the, uh, the US, he's, he's America's first Nobel Prize winner. And uh, because he was uh, so well versed in, in optics, and he came up with an ingenious experiment. And, and that is to determine uh, how fast we're moving through the galaxy. And I'm gonna get to that in just a moment. But one of the things, one of the other things is that uh, we have this, this thing happening called stellar aberration, and that is as we are moving around the sun, uh, the, the, the location of stars in the sky is actually slightly different from one part of the year to the next. And so you have this, uh, this change in the angle that's kind of like the, uh, the, motion, motion, the motion change to the angle of incidence. Just like if you're running into a rain, it seems as though the rain is coming from in front of you. you but what it's done is you've just changed the relative direction by your running. You've cause this angle of incidence. So, so some of the things that were kind of a, a, a problem people were saying is like, well, you know, if, if we're in motion, then, you know, you're not, it's not going to, uh, the light's not going to hit the right place if you're aiming in the wrong direction. So you're actually going to be aiming your telescope in the, in the uh, you know, the, towards wherever this aberration is occurring. So we're aware of this aberration happening to starlight, and, and that's actually and what's, what's funny here in the story is that that's usually given as proof against ether theory when in fact it was one of the first indications that the ether is actually true. It was used as one of the first proofs for ether theory before special relativity. Uh, and it's, it's like, oh, well, obviously the, the, the effect here is that the light is traveling through the ether and so therefore you're going to have this, this effect that's occurring. Um, so it's interesting that the how the narrative changed and used the exact same information to be a proof for and as a proof against, and you'll find that happens all throughout uh, our history. Uh, I'll, I'll eventually get to the uh, I never know how to pronounce his name. I keep forgetting to look it up. Sagne, Sagnac. Uh, it's it's spelled Sagnac, but it's uh, I think it's Sagne. Uh, it's uh, he he came up with an experiment that is is one of the experiments that is listed as the as one of the proofs for relativity, when it is actually uh, was set up specifically for the purpose of disproving a specific aspect of special relativity, and uh, and actually successfully did exactly as he predicted, and then is later used as, as proof specifically for it. Now, here's the thing. I'm gonna, uh, one of the things that's important to understand here is that this is about interpretation. So the, the, the same information um, that, I wonder if he, he didn't, didn't like the, uh, that I was against relativity in some way. Uh, that's, that would be my, that would be my, my first thought. 
uh, which which just means it doesn't get to get to the point where I, I tell them that it's actually there's there is a way in which relativity perfectly fits with ether theory. But you might have left before hearing that. Um, okay, so uh, <laughs> that's interesting. And by the way, there is a, some interesting things that, that occur uh, in uh, in modern times with uh, with the sociology of uh, of scientific advancement, and that is that there are, there there are some interesting sociological factors that have kind of built up around uh, certain scientific beliefs, and so it's it's an important. I, I think it's a very important part of science to be to watch the ways in which people interact with science as well. So. One of the things I do usually start with uh, before um, these um, uh, these lectures is to say that, that this that this is going to be entirely about um, the interpretation and that there is an alternative interpretation specifically of relativity and that is prior to relativity there was a relativistic ether theory that was developed by Lorentz and before him it was actually a man named Larmor who was working with Kelvin. Um, so I'll get to that in just a moment, but the idea here that I want you to understand is that it's about interpretation and that the exact same mathematics can represent two different pictures of reality. And, and when you choose one over the other without evidence, that's kind of problematic. You have to understand that there are these two, if there's not a, a specific experiment that separates two viewpoints, and there is not in this specific instance, uh, then you, you need to be able to continue to uh, to entertain these various viewpoints as, as equally valid until you have evidence that falsifies one or two. Um, so uh, further getting into the, uh, the river and the, uh, the swimmer analogy, and just the idea of um, let's see how much do I need to get into this. So there's just an idea of uh, as a river as a uh, as a swimmer goes into a river, you have to, if, if the river is flowing, you're going to have to aim at a spot that is that is different from where you actually want to arrive. And so you're, it's the same kind of thing as the stellar aberration. And this is going to get to uh, some explanation of the Michelson-Morley experiment, because uh, this is very important to understand the idea that a wave is going to travel in its medium. So its speed is relative to its medium. A wave in a that's uh, in a river. If I drop a pebble in a river, and it's, it's flowing at a nice even rate, there's not a lot of vortices and turbulence, etc. What's going to occur is you're going to see the, uh, the the circle spread out. That circle is going to be moving with the river. So so you'll actually drop it, and that, then that circle will move out from that location. But the location is relative to the motion of the water itself. So it's low, it's relative to the medium. Now, what does that mean? Uh, when you're thinking about light, is that there's going to be changes in angles, and there's going to be a, a change if light is actually traveling in a medium like any other wave does, which is it's, that's the mechanics behind, is that it has to be it travels at a particular speed that's relative to the properties of the medium. Then uh, you're going to have to take that into into effect, and this is how Michelson was thinking when he developed the uh, the Michelson-Morley experiment. And as he's trying to think out, well, what's going to occur is, you know, if it moves with its medium, then I've got to, I've got to think how that's, how that's going to work. And what that means is that if the medium is passing by us, just like the way in those, those, those ripples spread out from a location, but they're going in a certain direction, the waves that are going away from you 
they're going to be faster than the speed of the waves in the medium, and the ones coming towards you, oh, yes, are going to be moving slower according to your perspective. But this is a kind of a perspective illusion almost. I mean, it's it, but it's entirely related yeah. to your yeah. Right. <laughs> well, see, see, the thing is, I, I, I'm going general audience here, so you have to you have to excuse me if I get too too uh, too basic. Um, then one of the other things I want to talk about real quickly is uh, some of the, the arguments around stellar aberration. So one of the things of, uh, with stellar aberration is the idea that you can see over here on the left-hand side that if, uh, if there is this medium, then there should not be any aberration. However, what they've done here is created a, um, a straw man because this is not how it actually works in any medium that we know of. It works like what I've shown over here. Like if you imagine the top half of that, that image all the way on the right as just a large plane in which I've attached half of a, a pool table that's moving to the side there, then what's going to occur is that the, the, the ball is going to, as it changes, you know, at this, just this transition point, it, the, the angle of incidence is going to change. In other words, there is going to be this Let's, let's say, let's break it down to the particle level, that we've got two, two sets of air that are moving across each other. The particles are going to strike each other in a way that is going to alter the angle of incidence of the particles in the next border. And that's what we see in uh, all throughout wave mechanics. We don't see waves hitting this border and then traveling directly with it. There is this change of the angle of incidence because of the border. So this argument that they have here is completely a straw man argument against the idea that uh, that uh, stellar aberration can actually work along with a medium. Um, so let's let's continue forward to the Michelson world experiment because that is that that is the crucial thing that I kind of want to get across is understanding what the impetus for it was and how it impacts uh, all of both special relativity as well as Lorentz ether theory. And Lorentz ether theory now special relativity around uh, between 1905 and like 1912 era, uh, it was it was called Lorentz uh, Einstein ether theory because uh, it was it was well known that Lorentz had developed so much for it. One of the, the, the central calculation of special relativity is called the Lorentz transform, and and the very if you get down to just one thing that represents relativity, it's the change factor. It's the the way it is a, a single number that you can uh, we call gamma. It's a, it is a is a single point that of, of information in which all of the things that we do with relativity are related to specifically to the change factor. Now that was actually first developed developed by Larmor, uh, and uh, and, and <laughs> because he was basing his work on Kelvin's. But uh, and then after that, it was by Lorentz and Poincaré. So Poincaré and Lorentz had actually developed. A, a theory of ether uh, that that was based on the change factor. Now, where does the change factor come from? Why do we have this idea of time changing? Why do we have this idea of things shortening? And that is because they were attempting to explain the 1887 experiment, Maximoli experiment. And what occurred, which actually this is the second of two, but uh, this is the one that, that most everyone knows about. And what was occurring is so. Michelson says to himself, I want to find out how fast we're moving through the ether. You know, and, uh, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to come up with an experiment for that. 
And one of the first things that he did right there is he, he created a bias in the way that he's going to do this. And that is, the bias is pretending that the ether is a perfect grid and that you can detect its motion as it goes by you. Now, if you were to do that with a boat, that's like putting a little paddle wheel under your boat and thinking you can navigate it all over the globe with that little paddle wheel telling you the speed you're moving through the ocean. That's not going to work. Uh, so that's one of the first uh, things that you have to understand is an expectation of this experiment, is that, they, that the ether behaves in a certain way. So whenever you create experiments with a certain idea in mind, you need to understand what the bias is in it, what the ideas used behind it. And so when it, when it theoretically falsifies something, does it falsify all the ideas or does it specifically falsify one particular concept, one subset? And so understanding what is going on and what the what your ideas behind what it is that you're doing here are very important. Otherwise, you can start to confuse concepts if you haven't looked specifically at the the conceptual lineage, what it means, how it would be impacted, etc. So, in this experiment, he knows. Okay, so that means that uh, if I if I'm going through the ether, and we're just going to go with him on this idea that it's this perfect grid. If I'm going through the ether, then the light going upstream is going to be uh, going one speed and going back downstream is going to be another. So what he does is he says, well, that's going to be different than light that's traveling crossways from it. I don't know what direction the, the, uh, the wind is going. I think it's probably going to be coming from the, the east to west, depending on the time of day. It's night or day. I think that's where it's going to come from. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a, uh, an experiment. I'm going to see if it is going one way or the other. So what he did is he created this experiment with, with these perfect mirrors and, uh, you know, this is actually a drawing of it up there at the top. This is a, this one in the middle. It's kind of a simplification of it. And that is, no, it is important to understand that there, that there is kind of this intuitive idea that if something has to go upstream and it comes back downstream, shouldn't it just cancel out? No, it does not. Just that's, a, that's an intuition a lot of people have. I just want to kind of break that out right away. And then the other thing is that if you're traveling through the ether, it's not going to go, go just straight over to... A, uh, a mirror and straight back, it's going to have to travel in this little this little triangle here. So there's the, the upstream and back downstream, and then there's also this little triangle. And the difference between the distances that the light has to travel is going to alter how they would uh, be aligned. So um, let, me, let me try to back up a little bit. The, uh, so what he did is he said, okay, I understand interference. And I understand that um, what I can do here is take one beam of light, split it into two parts, and have one part going, going one way and one part going the other. And then when I bring them back together, if they've traveled exactly the same distance, then they would be perfectly aligned. But if they have traveled any, anything slightly different, they're going to be off by some portion of a wavelength or more. The two the, the wavelengths are going to be they're going to be interfering with each other. Remember that that two slit experiment I was showing earlier, where we create those fringes. Well, those fringes is what he used to determine whether or not light was having to travel further one way than it was the other, because of the a misalignment that would occur from it having to go further one direction than the other. And some of the things that a lot of people don't realize is the amount of trouble he went through in setting up this experiment. He not only so what we know about, about a single wavelength, a single frequency of light is that you can align it like anywhere you like, you know, because it's the same frequency, so you can just like line it up. If, if the, the, the distance that you're going on this 
you can have those those mirrors, the total distance be very different, and you can still end up creating fringes. But Michelson didn't want that, and that's a very important part of the story. He didn't want that because he wanted it to be exactly the same distance because there's different weirdness and overlay that you could create. You could actually cause some averaging and things like that if you didn't have the exact same waves uh, interfering with the other exact same waves. So he went through the trouble of using uh, sodium light, which has this characteristic double fringe when you were exactly in the middle. It would take hours sometimes to set up the, the interferometer so that, he would, so that the distance between these um, these mirrors go in one direction and the other, though it was like something like uh, 30 meters, he had it within nanometers. Okay? They were talking about this. It is amazing what this guy did in 1887. It's no wonder he's our first American, uh, American Nobel Prize winner. So, so he sets that up and then puts white light back in because white light is, uh, it's got all, all of the various frequencies and that's going to be important in a much later part of the story. Um, when he did this, the first one he did was only like a nine, nine meter or something uh, path length, and he got nothing. He was like, "Whoa, hold on!" So they make make a better one. 1887 is actually the second, uh, and and when he does this one, he gets a reading that nobody is told about. If you read his original paper, you actually can can calculate out the reading yourself, but it is much much smaller than you would expect, and in addition to that, he expected the wind to be coming from a particular direction. By the expectation of a particular direction, plus the fact that when you go back and forth, thank you, it is a, um, uh, they, they gave me a, a, a warning over here. That when you go uh, back and forth, what is, uh, what's occurring, it's called a second order effect, and that is that it's going to, there's going to be a nonlinear relationship between the speed difference, in other words, the actual speed that you're going through the ether, and the readings that you get. So, so for instance, if I were to have a reading of 10 kilometers an hour versus a, the reading of 30, uh, 30 kilometers per, uh, per second, both of, them, both of them per second, sorry, um, you would think that you would get one third of the reading, but that's not correct. You would actually get uh, very, very much smaller, like a thirtieth or a fortieth of the reading between those two, even though it is only three times as fast, right? So when you actually go through and calculate exactly what his experiment received as a reading of speed, and and then you and you don't use a specific direction, but simply take the whatever is the the direction that is showing on the interferometer. What you'll find is that the original Michelson-Morley experiment detected a speed of around 10 kilometers per second instead of 30 kilometers per second. But it was reported to be much smaller because, once again, he was expecting to be an east-west wind, and he was he didn't uh, tell anyone about the fact that this is sec a second-order effect. In other words, that's something you have to understand about the interferometer experiment. And in addition to that, it was not only a... Uh, a non-random plot. It was exactly what you would expect of a wind. That is a dual sine wave of readings. There would be two sine waves, whereas you go with 360 degrees, it's going to go back and forth between uh, the, the fringes shifting to one side and back to the other. And then this, this fringe shift back and forth is exactly what he detected. And it's also what uh, Dayton Miller detected uh, in tens of thousands of experiments after this point that a lot of people are not aware of. So, 
Now I'm going to try to, what I'm trying to do here is show how it is that um, all of this leads to special relativity because it's important to understand that what it was that Lorentz, that Lormor and Lorentz were attempting to do when they came up with that which is most essential to special relativity. And that is they're trying to come up with a way in which the motion of the ether could create this null reading because that's what everybody believed it to be is exactly null. Now, the fact that it's non-null, I'll tell you right now, I'll give you a hint, it's probably because of the fact that there, that there is air and there's something called a, a coefficient of ether drag that we now call the coefficient of diffraction. Um, and so, so therefore, any experiment in a, uh, in a vacuum should be null, but, the, uh, but any experiment that's in a gas should not be. Uh, we'll get to that later. I'm just kind of dropping hints out there because this is going, I'm going to try to bring you back to, to the tomorrow as well. But what I want you to understand is that the original Lorentz ether theory had time dilation, length contraction, and the illusion of light speed constancy. And as well as the, if you look deep enough, you'll understand that it would also lead to the illusion of, uh, what's it called? Uh, Yeah, I can't think of the word for it. But when time is different in a different place, what is that called? Relativity of simultaneity. Wow. Okay, so, so it should lead to all of those things. And it, it, it actually does, but understanding that it's an illusion in one theory, and these, these, these theories were considered mathematically equivalent uh, for many, many years. Most people don't really talk about that, but Poincaré and uh, well, the only reason he didn't get primacy was because of a publishing error. Uh, that's the only reason you need privacy over uh, Einstein. But uh, the the thing is, these things were a, were a description of a wave propagating in a medium. And so all the effects that we see in relativity were present in something that was a description of ether. So, so some of the things that, that typical, so where's the idea of time dilation come from? But what, why? After the, the, the Maxwell-Morley experiment came out, a man named George Fitzgerald uh, basically came up with the idea that well, maybe what's occurring is that as we're in motion, even though it's uh, we, we should have this difference in the in the time that it takes for light to travel up and down this experiment, maybe the 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 forces that hold molecules together because of course they weren't really talking about atoms at the time, uh, maybe those forces are actually stronger as the medium flows across it. And that causes them to be drawn together. And so therefore it shortens up and it just happens to shorten up exactly the amount needed to hide the fact that it has to travel further this direction, I mean further uh, in the direction of the wind and across it. And so it's like maybe, maybe um, th there's just this illusion that, that, uh, that the world is playing on us with light. That was the idea that uh, that actually spawned the calculation that we know that is the thanks. Uh, is that accurate? What time is it? It's one forty-five. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so that is that is the idea that leads to this idea of special relativity, and um, so. So it's, under, it's important to understand these differences in relative speeds and what it is 
when, we, when we're talking about the idea of constancy. So, so after Fitzgerald suggests this, and Lamour has already come up with something that is not generalized, he, does, he did his his work is not uh, as generally applicable as Lorenz's. Uh, so Lorenz actually did advances over Lamour, but so what Lorenz is attempting to do is to describe uh, electromagnetism in this fashion in which things are drawn together and that would hide the fact that light has to travel a further distance as you're moving and what this is going to do. So what exactly would be the idea for time dilation? Why would you have time dilation? Uh, at this time, all of reality basically is conceived of as electromagnetic in nature. So that means if an electromagnetic wave, which is that light, whenever we think of light, we think of the visible spectrum, but all of it from you know X-rays, etc., are that's, that's all light. So any kind of communication between uh, particles that allow them to to move when one when the other moves are going to have to be communicated through this ether. Well, if the ether is flowing across them, then then even the ways in which particles move towards and away from each other is going to be altered by how far the, uh, the, the the light has to go. In other words, how far that signal has to go. And if that signal has to go further because it's going upstream and back downstream, then that's going to change everything that occurs from, from the bending of steel bars and the way that gears, uh, you know, in a clockwork, everything in reality will be altered by this additional distance that signals have to travel. So therefore, that means it would literally, if you were moving through the ether, everything that is moving through the ether would ha would happen slower. So your your ideas of of uh, you would not be aware of it, but your time would be slow compared to something that is not moving through the ether. So understanding this is so because there's additional time for the for the light to propagate. If it takes longer. For every event, it takes longer for electrons to move around in your brain, it takes longer for every, everything that might occur, then that means your time is slow. Now, to you, you don't know, because that means if you were to look back at something like, oh, that's why I have this train. So this is understanding a constancy. And that is, there's, there's two ways in which you can understand the constancy of light. And I'm going to try to get to that before we end here. And um, so if you look at this guy, these guys are, are firing uh, uh, their their bows and what's going to happen here with ballistics is up at the top is that um, the hundred kilometers per hour that the train is moving plus the two hundred kilometers per hour that he fires is going to end up making the arrow come out at three hundred kilometers per hour. That is that is a uh, ballistics. Now that shouldn't happen with waves because they're relative to their medium. Uh, but what ends up happening according to relativity is that if you're in this train that's moving. Okay, so what, what occurs when you look at, at, a, at a bullet uh, uh, going past your train, if you're in a train that travels nearly the speed of the bullet? Well, if it's traveling very nearly the speed of the bullet, why I say this is just to get around some weird arguments, uh, is that the, the bullet is going to seem to like be just very slowly passing by you uh, because he's fired just as you, uh, just as you were coming by. So then you would expect that if a guy, if you were traveling in a train traveling nearly the speed of light, and a guy fired a laser in the same direction that you were traveling, that you would expect to see the first wave front slowly passing you by. Instead, what relativity says is that it passes by you at the speed of light. 
guy on the ground thinks it's traveling at a speed, and then when he, and he thinks it, and he thinks it's going very slowly past your window, but you think it's going past your window at the speed of light. So this kind of contradiction is uh, is actually how do you see how could this work in this mechanical world? Well, you know, because there seems to be this difference here because that can't work mechanically, right? Not necessarily because here's the here's the difference between Lorentz's ether theory and uh, special relativity. And, and here's the thing: most people think that that's per Einstein, and it's actually per Minkowski. Minkowski is the one who pushed the idea of constancy being the way that it is understood today. Um, and that is, so say I've got, let's imagine I've got this, this time gun. It's what I can do is I can slow down time inside the train. If I keep all the windows closed, I slow down your time inside the train, you are none the wiser. You have no idea. Because everything falls slow, drops slower. Everything's occurring slower for you. However, as soon as you look out the window, everything's going to be running around really fast out there. So, in this experiment where I'm going, you've got the train going nearly the speed of the bullet, and the bullet's just very slowly going by you. Could I not slow down your time just enough to make that bullet pass by you at what you think of as the speed of a bullet? The answer is yes, of course you could do that. Unfortunately, however, it would not work in the other direction. If I fired the bullet crossways, the bullets that I felt fired along with you, that would work with my little time gun thing here. And you would see the bullet pass you at the speed of a bullet, but the bullets going in this direction would be going way too fast. And so that is the thing, because there's never been a successful one-way speed of light experiment in history. All speed of light experiments are dependent upon two-way. In other words, it's up and back. And so the difference is there is an averaging that's going on there. So, so long as I have this average of the up and back, or the aggregate, or however you want to, it's, that's not the right word for it, but <laughs> if you look at the way in which it's yeah, what comes out when you calculate both up and the back. Then I can come up with a calculation that will work for that average and no matter what speed you're going. And that is what the change factor is. And that is what Lorentz model is this average of up and back. Because that's what was occurring in the Michelson Morley experiment. And so no matter how fast you go, so long as you're using a two-way speed of light experiment, you will never be able to detect that you are in motion. And you will also, your time will be altered with respect to other people, if you're moving through the, through the ether. But the thing is, with relativity, the difference is that it's what they call isotropy or anisotropy. I hate pronouncing that word. It always comes out weird. Um, so uh, I always want to say, anisotropy and anisotropy. Uh, the difference is, is that if it's, if it's the same in all directions or not, and there's still people who are attempting to create experiments which can uh, determine that, but one has never been made. And that is something that hardly anyone knows. So therefore, the defining experiment, which would say that Lorentz's or Einstein's uh, work should be held as superior, has never been done. And, uh, and so, and the original explanation for why this was occurring, why is it, what is the mechanic that makes time... Uh, changed by this exact amount? What is the mechanic that causes light to appear to travel the same speed in all frames of reference, no matter how fast you're going, etc.? What, what is the mechanism that's occurring? That was all gone because what happened after Minkowski is that we accepted this, that the illusion that Lorentz and Lamour were attempting to model was not an illusion, 
but was base reality without any explanation underneath the, the surface. And but and so so therefore we lose the idea that that a wave has to have something waving. We just start to believe it can just be. And then then you have to introduce this idea of a fourth dimension in in a way that is different. Now Lorentz used a fourth dimension, but it was a handy notation device to figure out these weird differences in your perspective of time. It was not the fourth dimension in the way that, that space-time is conjoined. Minkowski, which is uh, Albert Einstein's mentor, and somebody he actually uh, quoted, he was saying, is now that the uh, mathematicians have gotten a hold of the theory of relativity, I no longer recognize it myself. Um, and by 1920, he said that, that uh, the idea of uh, space without ether is unthinkable. And that's, that's still five years after general relativity. Um, Oh, here's some of the explanations. I'm trying to go really fast because they're, they're, they got me with that whole five minutes thing. Because uh, now I'm about to actually be at five minutes. Um, so what I want to get across to you here is that Lorentz developed a, a system that was uh, a description of a mechanic. Then that was ported directly as prior art, basically, by Einstein. And he was simultaneously also working on the electromagnetic side. In other words, how is it that, that uh, forces... Uh, interact with each other when it, uh, in, in a magnetic fashion. It's, you know, he was he was trying to marry this concept with uh, electromagnetism, and that was his focus initially. And so he didn't really care about the ether. It wasn't important to him because he was just so focused on the way in which <coughs> electromagnetism worked, and he was working simultaneously as Poincaré. Uh, so, so what he did was, in its own way, an advancement. And it was irrelevant to this idea of constancy because constancy was already there as an illusion in Lorentz's theory. And then it was this mistaken, this kind of, there was a pressure actually that was starting to occur from sociological factors to adopt Minkowski's space-time uh, convention. And it's a convention of the way in which you represent uh, the, the, any, any problem dealing with this that presumes the idea of constancy being uh, a certain way, that space is changed in a certain way, and therefore that light is isotropically constant. And that is that irrational seeming thing where basically when you look out a window, it's going the same speed. It, so it should work in both directions according to relativity. In other words, like if I slow your, 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 you down, uh, and, and let's say that instead we go back to the bullets, the bullet would pass you the, at the speed of a bullet, in this direction, according to Lorentz, if I used his system with, with this, then it should be going, the bullet, any bullet fired in this direction should be going way too fast, according to Einstein's theory, which is actually, we should say, instead, according to Minkowski, it should be going the same speed this way as well. And that actually is the problem that everyone has ever had with special relativity gets down to this non-mechanical point. And it is a point of preference it is not something that is scientifically proven, falsified, etc. It is an interpretation. And so understand that this is an interpretational difference without a, a, uh, an experiment to decide between the two is an, an important part of the series. And I'll be getting to uh, quantum physics and the ways in which the hydrodynamics actually um, uh, made its way into quantum physics and how every step along the way 
that uh, hydrodynamics was there underneath the surface, even uh, with general relativity, which I, I, I don't actually get into this, this series very much, that, that there is this um, influence of me with uh, uh, M-I-E, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, and his influence on uh, another fellow that was collaborating with Einstein at the same time as general relativity was coming out, and he was working on the exact same stuff, and, and some uh, of the scientists of the period wanted to give, and I've forgotten his name, unfortunately, I'm sorry about this, uh, wanted to give him credit for general relativity instead, and they would specifically say, no, it's really his, because because Einstein's changes that he's made now are so different from his 1912 Entwerp theory that this is, I mean, we have to give credit to this guy he's working with right now and for his sudden set of, of things coming out and all that, then you can trace the lineage, the conceptual lineage and the tools that were built for dealing with ether all the way back and find that what, what is underneath the surface is these two things happening simultaneously and the idea of what it is that we're doing and then the mechanics still working. In other words, the working pieces that were developed based on a rational set of mechanics are still there. And then we've said there are no mechanics on the surface. And we keep using these tools that are based on mechanical reasoning and saying there is no mechanical reasoning. And so that's what we're getting into in the next one. And I, I'm sorry if I went a little long here. I'm trying to pull too many different things together. Um, but thank you very much for, for coming. And I'm supposed to be... I guess vacating here pretty soon. <laughs> Thank you very much. So this is a three-part? Yes. Okay. What yeah. are the other ones? Uh, they're, they're all basically labeled the same, uh, like two and three. But I'm going to be getting into the uh, quantum mechanics and uh, ether theory. And then basically it's going to be the future of ether theory is the third one, which is how uh, ether theory impacts, um, well, how we can develop our current theories using this mechanical reasoning and the tools that have not only been developed in the past, but they've continued forward through knot theory, through Cossarat uh, Continua. Uh, there are all these tools that have continued to develop based on ether theory. Most people, like in material science, Cossarat uh, Continua are used for the material science, for the, for the elasticity of objects. However, Cossarat Continua were based on the, that final paper I mentioned of, uh, of Kelvin's, where he figured out the elasticity problem and actually saved Maxwell's uh, electromagnetism, because it was actually running into the same uh, uh, problem with elasticity. That was used to create, the, in 1909, and a brother died, and everybody forgot about the Cossaracs, and they used it for material science. <laughs> but it's there as a uh, as a way that we could continue forward in, 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 with ether theory, because it was specifically a description of ether theory.